Hello and welcome to the Two Who Recruit. Enjoy the episode. Hello to our listeners. So, firstly, welcome to episode five. They are going to be quick. <laughs> so, Jewel, the purpose of this podcast has been for us dispelling the myths of recruitment. And in our recent few episodes, our listeners have, you know, had Nilesh and Sheila come on the podcast. They've had our interviews dispelling the myths of recruitment. You know, Sheena and Nilesh were about diversity and inclusion and a lot more bro- broader topics as well within financial services or corporate corporate organization. So that leads me on to today's episode. I will let you introduce what the purpose of today's podcast is. So over to you, Jules. Yeah, thanks, Sheen. And yeah, I'm really excited about today because we have talked about dispelling the myth of recruitment, as you've just said. Um, but one of our key markets here at IAC is internal audit. And I've been recruiting internal audit now for about eight years, eight and a half years. And unfortunately, very much like you know, how we stereotype a recruiter, we stereotype an accountant, and we stereotype internal auditors. And I hear this every day, day in, day out, candidates saying, I don't want to go into internal audit. It's this. And actually, the, the this that they talk about is completely wrong. It's nothing like that. And so I always said that within this podcast, I'd love someone to come on and dispel the myth of internal audit. And that's where our, um, our guest today steps in. Um, so Mark Farisol is joining us today. Mark is currently... Hello, there he is. Um, Mark is currently the, the head of internal audit and risk at um, Resi Farm. Um, joining there six months ago. And he spent quite a while in, in Reckitt, a FTSE business, one of the biggest organizations in, in, in the UK and the world. Um, but Mark is a CPA. He's, a, he's an internal auditor. But Mark also was a quarter finalist on MasterChef this year, which is amazing. Can't wait to hear more about that. Um, and he's here today to talk a little bit more about the realities of the profession, the realities of internal audit, his journey on MasterChef, um, but also we'll delve into some more concepts around the DNI as well. So, um, hi, Mark. How are you? <laughs> Welcome. Hello, both. Th- first of all, thank you for having me. And thank you for this opportunity to talk about or dispel the myths and into the audit and just to talk about DNI as a whole. Um, so I'm Mark Ferrisol. I'm the group head of internal audit and risk management at Rassi Farm. I joined um, the 1st of July. Um, I would say I'm a career auditor, um, probably one of those people that actually love auditing, internal auditing specifically. I'm also consider myself um, a lifelong learner. So I like to, to learn every day to pursue um, different areas of, you know, learnings. Um, and I have strong zest for life pursuing different passions. Um, not only in internal audit, but outside of, of my career in the corporate world. As Julia has mentioned, um, I love food and cooking. I was in fact in the MasterChef 2022 that was aired in, in, in spring. I'm, I'm looking forward to this discussion and, um, conversation really. No, brilliant. Um, I mean, I guess let's go into the MasterChef experience then. And, and one of my first questions, um, really is how, how do you, how do you think the role of internal audit set you up for the success you had in MasterChef? And cause that's quite an interesting concept maybe, but how do you think it sets you up for success? Very, very good question. Um, so I think internal audit and MasterChef, it's kind of has a symbiosis, I think, um, words comes to mind. Um, in both instances, resilience, creativity, time management, and grace under pressure. So with all of those items I've just mentioned, I think, you know, we've encountered that. I've encountered that personally 
in my career in internal audits. I've been in, in the profession for 13 years and all of those are very important. Um, being resilient in, in all the changes and adaptability in a profession, creativity is very important. Um, time management and grace under pressure and, and those values or, um, I would say behaviors really helped me in, in the show. It was probably, that's why I love cooking as well, because you know, in cooking it's for me, it's an art. They always say that internal auditors are boring. It's just all the numbers and we're all accountants. We can talk about that later on and the myths of internal audit, but, um, we are creative people. We always think outside of the box, providing recommendations to, to our stakeholders, clients, if you're in a professional services firm. So I think those training I had in the last, say, 12 and a half years before coming into the show played a really good part into it. And as flip side to that as well, um, with my existing skills, the whole process from filling out the form, auditioning, filming the show, the challenges really enhance my existing skills in those areas. Um, and in some instances, you know, yeah, work, uh, if I'm faced with, um, multiple tasks, big multiple tasks with competing priorities, I'd always reflect on my time in MasterChef, which is quite interesting, right? <laughs> Remember that time when I had half an hour to, I don't know, do a beef stew, which I always think is really silly, actually, when you see that and you think, how can you make that in half an hour? I don't understand it. It takes me like four hours. Um, no, amazing. I was so about to say that. Sorry, Sheena. So that requires planning and time management, right? Because you've got, you know, the challenge of cooking two courses for one and a half hour for five people. So you got to strategize, you got to plan and um, execute it well under pressure with cameras all over you. Um, hosts and judges coming into your um, area to ask you questions. Sometimes it can be annoying, but um, I, I think that's the reality of the competition. Um, but again, you know, what I've learned in my profession um, really kind of enhanced my, my experience um, in the show. And I've managed to leverage some of that probably um, got unlucky in some of those challenges, but um, uh, I, I really took the opportunity to leverage in those um, areas. Nice. I mean, for me, a, a couple of things. Firstly, I think it's incredible that you put yourself through that because that cannot be easy. So absolutely, you know, applaud you for that. The second thing I would say is probably, in you know, your organizational skills. I mean, if that was me within 30 minutes, I, I, I cannot even imagine what the kitchen would look like. So again, absolute credit to you, but just really keen to know, how, how did it all come about, Mark? How did the process, who told you about it? I, I, I've been always a big fan of MasterChef, um, cooking shows in general. I've been following the show for years and years, and I also love cooking. So I actually discovered cooking and food when I was working in a professional service firm, and it got to a point that I got really um, burnout at work and I just needed some, some avenue to kind of, uh, forget about the stress and just some space to, to not think about work and world in general. So I, I got into cooking, but also my career into an audit traveling, um, the world experience culture kind of taught me a lot about food, about ingredients and stuff. So I, you know, I wouldn't be able to travel a lot. Um, in, in court of business passing up because of my career into an audit. So that's, that's always a plus. Um, so, so then I got into cooking really, really fast after that. And then, um, my, my husband, my partner really pushed me to apply for the show because I like hosting my friends. I cook for them. And every time I cook, it's, it's as if like I'm running a restaurant and I have a menu at the table to reclose this meal. So my husband, why not challenge your skills? And I'm self-taught by the way. So recipe books, um, watching MasterChef and also every time I eat out, um, I always come back home and I'm going to try that and recreate that at home. And, 
And so that's how it started. And I said, look, I'm at the stage of my life that if I don't do it now, when? <clears throat> I think it was a perfect time as well. Um, whether it is my personal life or my career, it was the perfect timing for me to apply for the show. I only applied once, which is fantastic. Um, apparently, there were around 10,000 people applied in the UK and uh, 45 were shortlisted to be in the show. And then one of those is, it's an amazing achievement already to be mm. in the show itself. Absolutely. I mean, Christmas day at yours, me and Jules are absolutely there. I think you know my address right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. I had to send the microphone to you. So uh, I'll be flipping that one. Sorry. Sorry, GDPR. Um, but, um, that's a really good point, though, on the travels, right? Because you touched upon there that the role of internal auditor is one of the benefits, in my opinion, is you get to go overseas, you get to explore different cultures. And, and actually, one of the, you know, the aftermath of COVID has been that internal audit teams are now traveling less. Um, market sounds like you're not, you're not traveling less. You're, you're going to Stockholm next week. Um, but lots of internal audit teams are reducing the amount of travel. And... Do you think that's a shame that that, that, that that could be happening, that there could be, there could be less travel now across the, the, the internal audit role? Um, straight answer, I think yes. And um, during COVID, obviously, we had to adopt our yeah. approach in incident audit and in, it worked in that scenario. Uh, but I think that a lot of countries have opened up now I think we should go back traveling because what I've learned through the virtual audit was it's never the same to be on site. Um, you know, on site, you, you can see people, you can observe um, body language, cues, be behavior. You can't see in in a um, virtual world. So I think the, the quality of the audit itself is better if you actually go on the site, meet the people, the conversations are different. Um, so in the end, the value add for the work that you do is better than virtual. So yes, it's, it's a shame. Um, but you know, on the flip side, it's good that companies recognizes that, you know, the world has changed and not all people are comfortable to travel. So offering that flexibility is good, but I think it depends on the internal audit function, how they want to, to, um, strategize to deliver their plans. But for me, for example, person as a group head of internal audit, I would prefer my team to travel, um, because for example, I'm new to this organization. That's why I've been traveling a lot to the sites to get to know the business, because that's the only way you get to know the business, to be on the ground, meet people, understand the risk opportunities and put a face to a name. It's different, um, especially stakeholder engagement. All of that is very important in the line of our work. I, I mean, it's, it's a very interesting point you raise because actually some of the discussions that I've been having within professional services that I support and do recruitment for is you know, it, it is really interesting to me. Are the quality of the audits the same when they are virtual? And I think your viewpoint is very interesting for me to hear, for our listeners to hear. So thank you. Thank you for being so honest about that. Yeah, I think, you know, I recognize that during the COVID time, people say, oh, you know, it worked. We can audit virtual. Well, it worked because the context of the situation we are in, we couldn't travel, right? so we don't have an option. So we have to make it work. But now that the world has opened, I, I think as part of our mandate as an internal auditor, um, we have to be underground. Mm. I think uh, a lot of the challenges that some heads of audit have had is that they go, they go overseas, they go and they go to do an audit, and nobody's there because they're all at home, and so they've have to. Almost, I mean, that must be a bit of a conflict as well. Um, you know, saying we're coming, we're coming to the office, we're coming to do an audit. We kind of need you to be there. It makes a little, makes less sense if you're all at home and we're just sat on team in Stockholm. <laughs> it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of an interesting one, isn't it? That, that's very true, Julia. I think it's case to case basis. Um, it, for instance, in my company, 
it's because it's predominantly factory or manufacturing um, products. So you're always going to see people on on the site. And for, for my company, it's just, I don't know what it is, but people want to be in the office. Um, I, I think they're at the phase that even myself, um, I, I want to be in the office. Um, so I'm a remote kind of worker because our head office is in Stockholm. So if I'm not traveling, I'm at home. So I actually miss to be part the social interactions, engagement with people, being with the team. The feeling of being part of a team is is different. But again, it's preference, right? Some people just operate on a, you know, they're more productive on their own and uh, working from home. So it's, again, we have to recognize that difference and, and people just, or, or not difference, more of preference, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I spoke to a candidate earlier today and, you know, it, they're of the same viewpoint and it's not just one candidate. It's quite a few people are saying, actually, there's a lot of online fatigue. They want that social interaction, like you mentioned earlier, you know, and they want collaboration. People miss that. People miss working with other people or having a bit of chit chat. And I think it's nice to get that balance within the office environment as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think um, it's also knowing yourself. I've, I've got a, quite a few friends who thought they wanted to work from home. They thought that that suited them and they wanted to work from home. And then they quickly realized that actually they are they're quite sociable people, they're quite extroverted. And they quickly realized that that company wasn't going to work for them because they wanted to be in an office. And I have so many candidates now saying to me, I don't want that remote role. I don't want to be at home, you know, and only go in the office one day a fortnight. Um, I want to be there and, and seeing my colleagues. And I feel the same. I mean, I choose to go in the office five days a week because I hate being at home. Um, mm. So I think it comes down to that individual. But gosh, that's hard, isn't it, for organizations from a cultural perspective to get right? Because you've got thousands of people working in a, in a business. Not everyone's going to have the same the same kind of thought process when it comes to that. So it'll be interesting to see how companies really manage that over the next couple of years, I think. Um, that'll be an interesting one. Um, let's, let's go back a little bit further, Mark. Um, one question I always like to ask people is, why internal or how did you find yourself in, in this profession? Right. So I'm originally from Philippines. Um, so in the Philippines, is a bit of a different system. So for you to sit down a qualification or a CPA exam, you have to have a degree in accounting. So I, I had a degree in accounting for four years and then I sat down a CPA exam. And before you join professional services firm in the Philippines, majority of the time, especially if you do audit as a practice, whether it's external audit or internal audit, the re one of the requirements you should be a CPA. So it's, it's, uh, it's a different system than the UK. So when I joined uh, PwC in the Philippines, um, I was asked what would be my preference, external audit, tax, or internal audit. Um, I always know that I don't like numbers. Strange, right? I'm, I'm an accountant, but I like numbers. Um, what I meant by that is I just don't, I, I don't like analyzing financial statements all the time. So I want variety. I get bored very easily with um, routine um, kind of work. So I chose internal audit or we call it risk advisory services at that time. And um, without knowing really what, what it means, because in an accounting degree, they don't teach you about risk advisor or internal audit. Or we, we were taught about management advisory services, financial management, financial accounting, et cetera. But internal controls, internal auditing, you know, all of that is experienced through work. Um, after a year, then I, I found myself and said, I really enjoy this line of service because the variety of the work that I do, um, you know, some days you have projects around business process improvement. You do controls advisory or like controls like socks, for example or you do forensic or fraud audit. So the variety is quite wide. And also the impact that, uh, and value that you see with, that I, I saw with the clients, because it's very, the projects are very specific. 
at the end of the project, you can see the recommendation. And if they implement the recommendation to improve the business, then you can see the value of your work. And um, finally, I think uh, I've mentioned it is the scope of, of work. So internal audit, you don't only look at financial controls or the numbers, you look all areas in the business. So you could be auditing operations, you could be auditing, say, sustainability or supply chain, procurement or innovation, R&D. So they're all different. So I think it made me kind of, because um, probably inherently I'm, I'm, I'm a creative person more so than a um, numbers person. Um, so I, I, I probably, that's why I'm drawn into it more than an external audit. And ever since um, when I moved to the UK, um, involving different projects, multinational companies, the travel, um, the opportunities is, is quite wide um, because of the areas that you audit and the projects that you do. So, yeah, so that's, that's how I got into it. And I, I, I stayed still uh, up to now. And that's why I consider myself career auditor because I actually love internal auditing. Um, I, I love uh, probably some of my friends will laugh at this, but yes, I, I actually, one of those that will accept and say, hey, like, I, I do love auditing. That's the title. That is the title right there, guys. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm going to and I love it. I love it. I love it. I love that. And that's great. I mean, I love recruiting it. I, I find it but like bonkers when people go, oh, I don't want to be an internal auditor. Ooh. I'm like, it's so sexy. It's such a cool role. You get to like literally um go to the bonnet almost of yeah, of a car and really to look in, inside it. I always um I'm not sure if you know this show, Mark. You, you might not do, but there was a, a TV program when I was a kid called Come In, Come Outside. I think it's called Come Outside. And it was where this woman and her dog got in an aeroplane. It was a polka dot aeroplane. And she used to fly around the UK in her little polka dot aeroplane, um, going to like a sewage works or a bakery or a swimming pool. And she would go and talk to individuals from those places about how the processes work so how did the sewage work how did the swimming pool function how did the bakery make their bread and I always say that that's kind of how I imagine the role of an internal auditor you're, you're going to different areas of the business and you're asking questions and you're figuring out how things work so there we go I, I that's I always explain how I explain it to people <laughs> that's internal audit you get to I'm go. absolutely giggling myself because right. I used to watch that Absolute favorite program ever. Yeah. Absolutely. It sounds really, you know, it sounds very versatile, you know, what what you do and what internal auditors do. You know, you've got different departments that you need to, you know, almost, I hate, I hate to say the word investigate because that's how I remember when I was audited, I sometimes felt. So even for me, I used to have an image about internal audit, but it's completely not like that. But the two who recruit, series what two tops would you give sorry what two tips or two things that you think people would need to be a good internal auditor oh nice Ooh, nice <laughs> <laughs> um, well there's quite a lot um, i would say top three Let, let's do top three i think first is um you should have good interpersonal skills because with internal audit you talk to a lot of people in the organization, in all areas of the business, um, from the process owner level to exec level. And I always say to people and to the staff that I coach, that if you have good stakeholder engagement in internal audit, good relationship with people, you're halfway the job, yeah. right? And so that's kind of the 50%, I would say, on how we add or create value to the organization. So the other 50%, the 25% of that is creativity. And, you know, in internal audit, you need to always challenge your thinking, thinking outside of the box, because we provide recommendation. So, you know, yes, we do compliance audit. I'll discuss it more later in the Mythbusters, but, you know, um, with the variety and uh, of the areas that we audit, you, you always need to challenge your thinking. Um, 
challenged your recommendation? Is it really going to add value? Yes, you found something, right? So that's the issue. What's the root cause of that? So then what's the recommendation? Sometimes you just recommend document this and that, but really, does that really fix the issue or the root cause of the problem? So you need to always challenge yourself and, and think outside of the box. The last thing I guess is, um, management, whether it's time management, planning and all of that, cause you multitask all the time. Um, you have competing projects. It depends on what level you are in, in the, in, in the team, but there's got to be a point that you're going to be doing two or three projects at the same time. Um, doing other stuff as well, strategically within the function. So I, I guess I'd say that those are the top three for me. There's, there's a lot of things still, but, um, I think good interpersonal skills to increase, uh, have excellent stakeholder engagement, creativity, thinking outside of the box and, um, time and planning management. Really? Thank you. I would agree with all those. I, I love talking about interpersonal skills. Um, why I enjoy recruiting actually for internal auditors. I think if I was recruiting for any other profession, um, maybe that weren't sort of involved with stakeholders quite as much. Um, I can't think of many professions that don't work with stakeholders, but that there are some out there. Um, I'd struggle because I I like finding the personality matches. I like making that judgment. Oh, is a person going to get on with that person? Are they going to fit in with that culture and that business? That's what makes our job a bit more interesting. Just finding a CV and flinging it over, well, that would be just so boring and just not, again, not adding value. So, it's, yeah, I think it's, um, it's very important, isn't it? Well, we'll get on to these then, um, dispelling myths, because um, we've talked in previous conversations about, you know, the misconceptions we hate about recruitment, um, our, you know, what kind of really annoys us about what people think of us as. Um, what what misconceptions or what kind of myth do you want to sit on this podcast and go, right, that that is just not true. Yes, let's get over this one. <laughs> it's not true. Okay, right. I, I have a long list, Julia, but um, <laughs> I always believe in the power of three. So let's do three. Um, well, first, people always think we're accountants. We are not accountants. We're not only, you can be an accountant. We just don't look at the numbers or financial controls. People with internal audit is the same as external audit. You're all accountants. You look at mm -hmm. the numbers. Oh, the scope of internal audit is wide. So I think the, the primary, um, I think the quickest, uh, was the explanation is if you look at all the business risks of an organization, we provide us, we aim. Well, that's the mandate. We aim to provide assurance on those business risks. May it be in people, hate or people in HR, sustainability, operations, finance, um, R&D, innovation, commercial aspects of it. We do it. So you don't have to be an accountant um, in, in internal audit. You can, and sometimes it's a plus in some instances, but no, it's not. The second one is that we lack creativity or we're boring. We have a list or a standard checklist on what to check or what to review every time we do an audit. No, probably 10 or 20 years ago, probably yes. But I think internal audit has evolved throughout the years. And, you know, now we are being challenged to have a more tailored risk-based agile approach. Going back to my first point that we look at all business risk in the organization. So you got to tailor the work that you do based on the risks that you're trying to provide assurance on. So with that, that's why on the top three of the skills that needs to have or very important is creativity because you continually challenge yourself to be creative, think of ways and methods on how to, to audit that area. Because for example, sustainability, we, you know, it's an emerging topic. ESG is an emerging topic. And now internal audit has that responsibility to provide assurance of those. And not internal, all internal audits are trained or just, you know, even the concepts and theories of ESG. So that's why you teach yourself, right? You go to trainings, you, you go to additional classes or forums to understand. And so you can provide a value adding recommendations to the organization. So that's the second point. 
The last point is we are corporate police, right? <laughs> we, um, I've experienced it in the past that, oh, you're just here to police us, you know, that our work is mostly compliance. The answer is no. Mm-hmm. And um, partly is also a challenge to the profession that that's why you have to be a collaborative partner because essentially you're a business partner, internal audit services, right? So you provide service to the organization um, through providing assurance. So even now, you know, we, in some organizations, internal auditors are still seen as corporate police. Oh, you're just finding faults and then you report me, you escalate it. Um, so no, we, we are a collaborative partner of the organization to improve processes, to have efficiencies, to save money and to address their, or mitigate the risk. So we are more than that, if not a corporate police. Um, so those are my top three. We are not just accountants. We are not boring. We are not corporate police. I love it. Yeah. How do you deal with that stereotype, Mark? So if you, you're going into audit a new, you know, you're going to audit a new department and they are, they've had bad experience in the past or they just have that perception. How do you, what do you do? What are your tips to sort of like change, change yeah, them? Yeah. So this is where the interpersonal skills and stakeholder engagement comes in, right? You, every time you, you go to an audit, you do planning sessions, you do meetings with the key stakeholders to understand or to scope a project. And that's where you set the tone and say, our objective here is this, we are a collaborative partner. We're going to help you to improve. We're not here to police you. That's always been my approach. First meeting. Plan, even at the planning stage, we've not even agreed that this is the scope of the audit. Uh, I always say that in meeting people. And um, the CFO told me the other day, and it also helps Mark because he always smiles. So <laughs> probably that's one of the tips. Oh, you're one of the, the CFO told me you're one of the auditors I know that can smile. And I said, well, I help. I mean, people engage with me because I think it's just making them feel that actually you're there to help them. It's that, And, you know, I always say as a business partner um, to the organization, you have to be, to have some level of humility as well, because you're actually providing service to them. Even if they are your auditees, you need to humble enough. I'm here to provide service to you, to provide assurance on what you're doing. Because sometimes, right, I mean, I had this in the past. I'm going to be honest. You come in, oh, I'm here to audit. And you put yourself in a high horse. I'm more powerful than you. I'm going to find for, I'm going to police you. It's not going to work at this day and age. And, you know, that's why uh, I always um, brand myself as your friendly auditor. (laughs) I think it all, because, you know, people as well would be very honest and straightforward we have an issue here and we you to highlight that because we want to improve because if you, if you try to be a corporate police, they will just tell you what you need to know or Mm. what you ask for. They won't help. So it's a two way process, but again, it's that collaborative bond. I think that's very important. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head because, you know, if I'm looking at my experience, it was really collaborative like you said you know it depends how you know if you're spoken to and they understand it's about how to improve and I think some people really like that as well you know within their work and they strive for that so I think it depends on the personality of the receiving end as well I agree with you Sheena because I think one of the things as well is know your auditors, know your audience. And, you know, some auditors, they want to be policed, you know, don't get me wrong. So, you know, they want that compliance stuff and you have stakeholders. No, I just want compliance. Mm-hmm. So you just got to listen and adapt. Um, but, you know, as internal audit function evolves in every organization, I believe we're, we're moving away from that. Mm-hmm. We've got a magic wand, Mark, and you can change something about the profession. What would you change? 
good question. And I think it's kind of linked to what we've, we've just discussed. I, I think if I have a magic wand, I, I'll change the corporate police um, perception or because don't get me wrong, it still exists. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite saddened that by the amount of policing that internet audit still undertakes, it, it's still there. I'm not saying it's uh, not happening. Um, I think it's also one of the reasons that um, we are still disparagingly referred to as a corporate police because of how it's still existed. And well, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, go for it. <laughs> No, but you know, I, I I think I'd like to think that we we are saddled with this kind of perception and policing duties because of our stakeholders' demand. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes your stakeholders want a compliance, you want to police. So again, that's kind of linked to company culture, the tone of the top. Um, but again. You know, unfortunately, some of us in the profession still act like police because we enjoy it, right? Yeah. There's a sense of power that comes from it, from picking the radar guy, like, look, you are the offender. And, you know, the, the power that comes with it, I think some people are still enjoying it. And, you know, as a young internal auditor, when I was starting my career, we, uh, I'm kind of indoctrinated early on that internal audit is policing, you know, yeah. catch who might be doing bad things. Yeah. And looking back, I, I, I realized how ridiculous the approach could be at times. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I hope that, you know, we, we shared our image of being counters and demonstrate that our expertise on how beans are grown or harvested and taken to the market. You know, that means it, it's uh, hopefully it, 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 in, uh, it will evolve and improve in the next few decades. But yes, that's, if I have a magic wand, uh, I, I would change that. Because now if you look at the areas and the assurances to provide cybersecurity, toxic cultures, ineffective risk management, ESG, I mean, you know, it's a lot of areas in the business. So we are more than just corporate police yeah do you do you think it and um, going to help that the the top 10 accountancy practices though you know your big four your top 10 have started to recruit individuals who have not just come from accountancy backgrounds so you look at the big four they do take people who come from history english lit french um but they're also now taking people obviously who didn't go to university they're taking people who come straight from straight from school, school leader program, um, which we, we know about. Um, but so do you think that will help? Is it enough? Um, I, I would not say enough. I would say we will continue to, to adapt and evolve. But I think I've seen that in the practice and how valuable that is, how diverse the, the, the team in terms of age, experience and skills, especially with internal audit. Um, as I've said, we're covering different business risk areas, like not, and actually that's one of the things that when I came here to the UK and I was actually shocked, um, meeting my colleagues that did sports science, PPE, you know, um, it, uh, economics quite related, but you know, literature languages. And I was like, really, why are you in internal audit? And then you suddenly realize actually you know, the variety or diverse set of skills from those different uh, experiences is valuable for, for internal audit. So yes, uh, I would say, but we will still continue to, I think the big four or top 10 account is quite good at this. Um, also, especially with um, school leaver programs that actually didn't go to university. I've worked with a lot of them and they are incredible. Um, you know, if you don't need to be, to go to university, but if you prefer, then you have the option, but, um, you know, the training at work is sometimes, um, greater and, you know, I've seen successful school leavers, um, in, in the organization. I think the corporate world, the industry, I would say is a bit behind, um, on that. So, um, early in careers, um, grad programs they have, um, which is good, but not as big as 
the professional services firm, I'd say. So yes, it's always used, especially in internal audit. Jules, what do you say? Should we get into interview style questions with Mark? Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Ask a few. Yeah, here we go. Here we go, Mark. Give <laughs> <laughs> me some content. When we get our guests on our podcast, we, we try and do some sort of interview question. So um, here goes. I'll, I'll give you two to begin with. What would you say motivates you? What drives you in your career, in your personal life, relating it back to MasterChef? Hmm. Um, so I think my, my key motivation in life is really to live a fuller life. Um, so what that means is to me is pursuing a lot of passions, um, in life, not only, you know, spending a lot of time working and obviously the reality is, um, you work, you, you have money, but at the end of the day, you have to live a life. So it's, it's always important to pursue other passions. And if passion is your work, then find another one, um, to, to pursue so, so you can live a, a fuller life. So that's one thing. I think the other one is learning and growth. Um, I get bored really easily. And, um, so I, I'm lucky that I married someone that I could continuously learn because otherwise they're probably not married them. So, um, I, I like someone that will challenge me that I feel that I grow as a person. Um, cause I, I, I said in, in the introduction that I, I'm a lifelong learner. So if I continue to learn, whether it, it would be in my professional or personal life, then that's something that drives me and motivates me. Um, the last thing is around creativity. Uh, I'd say, or innovation. Um, so I, I'm, I'm quite creative in, in probably most aspects of my life. I, I try to be, um, so even at work in internal audit, um, so I'm just preparing audit committee papers before doing the call. And I spoke to the chair of the audit committee and, you know, I ha only have two decks and essentially he said, oh, your deck looks like a brochure of a magazine. <laughs> It's incredible because, you know, at board exact levels, they don't see long narratives of internal audit updates. So it's just like fish and snapshots and it easily captures your audience and you can be able to talk about it and, you know, discuss. So I think for me, even in MasterChef, that's why I'm probably into cooking because of the creative side of it, even at own, my own home and, and, and all of that. So. I crave for that. Um, so I think that's top three for me. Well, you're doing the, the supper club, aren't you? Maybe share with the people, with people the supper club that you're doing with yeah. contestants. Um, so I, I am doing a supper club every month with two other contestants. Um, Farouk, who is a semi-finalist, and Hannah, a fellow um, quarter-finalist. And yeah, we do it every month. Again, you know, it's an avenue for me to express that creativity. Don't get me wrong. Physically, it's so tiring. It's eating up a lot of my time. I'm already busy at work. And my friends, even colleagues say, where do you find time? But I always believe of, you know, if you like doing it, if, if there's a will, there's always a way. And you, you'll, you'll find time if you like doing it. And it's when you do that, I'm not a professional chef. Um, um, but doing that, the service and being in the kitchen, uh, the whole day, it, it's so tiring and your body, you, you can just feel it. But then those hours that spent on there, I have not thought about work or, or the issues in the world, you know? So it's a really good, um, space for me to kind of reflect, rebalance my life Absolutely. in a creative way. <laughs> I love that because I, I always say, you know, if you, even, you know, Jordan, I absolutely love recruitment and, you know, although yes, I'm at work, sometimes I don't feel like I'm at work because I enjoy the people that I'm around. I enjoy what I do. And I think when you enjoy something you do, no matter what it is, you do, it doesn't really feel like a chore. So I think that's quite, quite important, isn't it? Um, my second question for you, Mark, would be recently becoming a head of audit. 
what kind of, what tips would you give to perhaps other people who want to get into leadership positions? Okay, I think the main thing is, this is what I've learned all throughout my career, the missteps, the mistakes I've, I've made, and I still continue to make mistakes. But all through that experience, I think what really, the biggest realization for me is be authentic. Um, it sounds a cliche, it sounds simple, but it's, it, it's hard when you have a lot of pressures from your ambitions, your pressures at work in different culture, different context, uh, but be authentic. The other part is finding your spark. I, I always, you know, that spark and spark means for me is as significance. Um, why, as, why are you doing that? Whether it would be your hobby or your career, why are you doing internal auditing? Why? So then you find that significance and purpose of why you're doing it. The, the P in spark is passion, right? And the second, the A in spark is ambition. So it goes all together because ambition is nothing without passion. Um, so, so going back to your point, Sheena, is enjoying what you do. So that's what passion is all about because yeah. it doesn't um, feel that it's a job. It's a chore. Yes, obviously you're getting paid, but actually you're doing... Um, enjoying what you do that passion and it links to ambition mm. it's important as well that you need to be ambitious to get to to a place where you're going to be because it it will guide your steps it will guide your journey towards that mm -hmm. um things that you need to do the decisions you're going to make and, and resilience um you know don't be afraid to to make mistakes i've made a lot of mistakes again as i've said a lot of missteps and probably still continue to do so. And that's fine. And I'll just pick up the piece again and, and try again. And the A in spark is kick-ass attitude. I would say, you know, you've got to be bossy um, to be, you know, you got to know your worth. So that's why if you know, your, you know, your significance, you're passionate about it, have ambition, you've been resilient. You can have that kick-ass attitude and asking of what you deserve. You know, before early years of my career, I'm too shy to say, I deserve something more. I need to be promoted. You, you, because it's not our nature, especially for me to kind of ask for that, because I believe, you know, you just reward with performance. But, you know, all throughout my year, years, if you don't ask, nothing will be given <laughs> and in, in, in the profession, at least. So, yes, be authentic and find your spark. Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely resonate with that myself. I'm sure many of our listeners as well, because authenticity is key to everything. A lot of people don't want to see something that's false or something that's fake. And I think when it comes to making mistakes, learning, I, I mean, something that we as a business are really good at doing is celebrating mistakes because it's, it's meant, you, you know, it means that you have learned something at the back of it. And that is so, so important. A lot of people are afraid of making mistakes, but actually, if it helps you improve and grow as a person, that is equally as success. You know, you know that's, that's what success looks like as well. You've learned something at the back of it. Absolutely. And, and I feel like you don't grow if you don't make mistakes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I never used to like making mistakes. Gosh, I was an absolute goody two-shoes. I could, and I still to this day can't stand it, but. I could not stand doing anything wrong. I mean, it was, oh, it was awful, right? Awful. And now I always try and do it because I, I now know that if I, if, I don't, if I don't do something wrong, I've not actually tried to, to push myself. I, I haven't. Um, it is important. I really want to get onto this topic, Mark, because it is a topic that I know is passionate to you. And, and I think, yeah, we, we've touched upon diversity in the past sort of about 45 minutes. Um, how diverse do you think corporate workplace is and, and what, and what do you think we need to do to improve it? Um, I'd say it's relative, um, to every organization, but I would say it's not enough. Um, for me, diversity, we, we just don't look at race, ethnicity, gender. We should also look at age. We should look at, um, disability. We should look at experience, um, 
in, in most cases. Um, so I think it's relative in every organization. Um, I, I, I was lucky that I was in, in record. I was part of that journey of evolution and improving our inclusivity and diversity at, at work. But I see a lot of organizations that still not doing enough. Even racket that starting to get mature, but it's still not enough. So how do we then um, improve that? And based on my experience, three things. Tone of the top, right? The people at the top executive level should practice what they preach, what they say, the DNI strategy, et cetera. So sometimes it's almost like, oh, it's just a headline or it's a drop line or it's a corporate PR thing. So it's always important to set that tone of the top, to have those champions at that level, which then brings my second point about allyship. It's very important to have allies in all sets of diverse diversity within the organization, may it be LGBTQ+, or race, ethnicity, gender, disability. It's important that um, we create those allies. We continue to educate people to be an ally because, you know, we spend, what, 80% of our time at work. And, you know, if you can't be yourself at work, I had that in the past. I can't be myself at work. And it has a great impact on my performance. And now some organizations can see that. Um, and lastly, I think creating a safe space. Um, safe, safe space to learn, safe space to have a discussion, safe space to talk about the challenges the the lived experiences of of these people and also to get challenged and to have discussions around it because some people i think most of the time it's either probably um not being educated or you know the the ignorance of it all that comes across negative and um and also for us who is on you know on that uh, minority for example um, cause we always get challenged, oh, um, people that, for example, straight men or straight women are now, um, threatened that we, all these people in my writers, you know, but it's not all about that, isn't it? It's, it's all, uh, well, us creating a space for us, but what we're not trying to pull you down. Mm -hmm. So again, for us as well, the accepting that we can't win everyone. Right. So that's why in, in all the activities and initiatives in a corporate world, the focus is the people, whether that's already in, in your ally or those majority that probably are indifferent or not educated enough. And that is that small minority of people that will always be challenging that or that always have a different view. And that is just the reality of the world. We can't be, you know. But you can't win everything. So I think, you know, my experience in chairing the LGBTQ plus ERG in record in the UK um, before I left, that's what the, the biggest learning I have. You know, you can't win everyone. Mm. And, you know, because otherwise you're just focusing your energy and not, you're not winning. You can't, you can't convince them. You can't educate them mm. because they already chose them. They already have a set of mindset and they'll stick into it. So focus on the energy on, those people that are already um, in the allyship or those people that are indifferent. So that's a target. So those are the top three for me, tone of the top, allyship and creating safe space. Well, I'm, I mean, I, I always act, like asking this question because somebody once asked me this in a DNI sort of webinar or workshop we did. Hmm. Um, they, somebody asked me, what, what are my thoughts on positive discrimination as a female? You know, what, what are my thoughts on that? And um, have you ever been asked that before? And what, what is your, what is your, what are your thoughts on positive discrimination in the workplace, for example? Um, I, I'm not sure if I've experienced that before. Um, can you shed some light, an example of that, Jules? Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll reflect on if I, if I had those experiences. Yeah. So I think, you know, if, for example, somebody has chosen me to get, get promoted because I'm a female and they want to put somebody in that role because they're female they want right. to you know they want to hire somebody for a reason for a purpose and I speak to lots of you know um I spoke to a, a head of audit who who felt she was put somewhere because she was female 
Um, do you, yeah, what, what do you, what's your take on that? What are your thoughts? Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, no, it's a bad thing. <laughs> Personally, I, I, I mean, on the face of it, right, um, on the face of it, it's a good thing, right? Because you're being seen. But essentially, it's, it's not a good thing because for me, as part of um, diversity inclusion is really fairness. And, you know, it's always going to be in the performance, regardless of your gender, ethnicity, and all of that. Um, I've not experienced it myself, but I've heard a lot of that. Even I've, I've, I've heard when I was in one of the professional services, or when I joined, um, when I moved in the UK, I was said, oh, you're um, one of the numbers on the BAME, you know? You're hard because they they need to increase the number of minorities in the organization. Obviously, uh, I just brush it off. I don't care. I'm still here. I'm just going to make the best out of it. So so probably if you hear that, oh, you get promoted because you're a, you're a woman, then prove them wrong. Then that you're just promoted because of your performance, not because you're a woman. And people, there are always going to be someone who will say that. And because you can't please everyone. So I, I, you know, that's, that's where my stand is that you'll always, even in a diversity inclusion point of view, in every organization, you'll always have that group of people that will say, oh, we'll have positive discrimination or something like, um, oh, so you're elevating them. So then what's for us? And, 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 you know, all, oh, this is unfair. Um, but I, I chose not to focus my energy on that. And if you are part, victim of positive discrimination, then prove them wrong. Well, yeah, I like that. Be the cat. Go for it. Let us bark. Let us bark. Shall we head on to, just conscious of the time as well. So shall we get on to Mark the Bamboo question? Yeah. I'll give you some context. The bamboozled question is a question we have for all of our guests. Disclaimer, no one ever knows what we're going to ask them. So this is magically Yeah, even worse than presenting to the audit committee. It looks like I owe a drink. Bring James and Jules on a Friday afternoon. It, it won't be so hard, Mark, but yeah, I think all our listeners love the bamboozled question as well. So I'll be nice. <laughs> if you got, and by the way, you're a winner to me anyway, but taking it back to MasterChef, if uh-huh. you had got, you know, if you get, if you ever got to the final stage again, or, you know, if you ever did a competition or a food competition again, what would have been? the food menu that you would have chosen for your final, if you got into the, as a finalist, give me starter, main, and dessert. I'm ready for this. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, yes. No. So I love the question because again, it's part of the, the passion about it. And um, I, I relate it back to MasterChef and my MasterChef experience. Um, one of, the reasons that I joined MasterChef as well is to um, showcase. I, I didn't have much opportunity. I did at the first, um, but I wanted to show different skills. So, but I was planning to go back into it when I go semifinals or final round is to showcase Filipino food. Um, so I, I don't think that it had enough um, spotlight compared to Thai, Chinese, Indian cuisine. Um, it's so diverse because of our rich culture and heritage in terms of food. Um, so I would showcase Filipino food. Um, the starter would be a lobster sinigang. So oh. sinigang, so sinigang is a soup in the Philippines that is is quite sour. So that is made of tamarind broth. Uh, grass, a bit of ginger, and a bit of tomato. So it's kind of tangy, sour taste. Um, so my so normally in the Philippines would have it with pork or prawns, 
with a lot of vegetables like aubergines, string beans, um, daikon. Um, so that's kind of your traditional, but obviously it's master chef, right? So I'm going to do kind of like a lobster bisque, um, lobster bisque sinigang with a lobster on top. Oh, so that, Sheen, that's a start Sheen there. Sheen's lobster. Sheen's lobster. I'm a fan. She's drooling. Look at that. She's like, it might have, it might be something to do with that. I'm absolutely starving. So you can cook me anytime. <laughs> I'm hungry now. Go on, main. Uh, main course is um, lechon. Um, I, I'm not sure if you've heard of lechon. Okay. So it, the uh, hug roast is a normal, traditionally it's a bit roast, um, full pig um stuff with lemongrass loads of flavor in there and you roast it in the open fire um so obviously I, i'm gonna do a belly a pork belly version of it and wrapped it with garlic spring onions lemongrass roast it to have that crispy skin and i would serve that with um, pomanas, it's like a thin layer of potato. So, if you notice, it's kind of French Filipinos, it's like French techniques, yeah. but Filipino flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I will do some Jerusalem artichoke puree and some pickled vegetables and um, some crispy apple. That sounds oh. sublime. Oh, <laughs> I'm actually really upset that I'm going to have to cook my own dinner tonight and I can't cook, but I'm the worst cook. When you join, I'm pushing. Tell you what, I've even, what I'm making for dinner. Yeah. No, yeah, that's not even talk we're going to make. Do you want, for my lunch today, I had tuna, couscous, and some of those, you know, it's like um, sweet corn, the corn on the cob, the little mini corn on the cob. That's what I had for my lunch. Tuna. Right now. Corn. It was all horrible. Before going to the dessert, I'm going to have some yuzu and calamansi and sake granita for a palate cleanser. The calamansi is our kind of version of like a lime between lime and lemon. So I think it's near a kumquat, I think. And then yuzu obviously is um, Japanese lemon, some sake in it. They're very fresh, tangy to just clean the palate. Yeah. And then for my dessert, it's called Lechiflan. It's called it's called Flan in the Philippines. Um, so it's kind of like uh, creme caramel, um, panna cotta kind of texture. Um, in in Brazil, I think they're they're calling it pujib, and that's kind of version of it. Um, so essentially, that with mango and passion fruit coolie for some acidity. And then I'll make a crumble for some texture, but put ube. So, you know, ube, taro. So it's um, a famous in the Philippines to have kind of earthy, um, sweet uh, root crop flavor into that. And um, yeah, and then maybe a mirang on top. So that's that's, that's the um, dessert. Dessert only. Well, out of interest, are there any good Filipino restaurants in London that you would say put on your list to go to them? Because I've, I, I, yeah, I've never ever eaten at a Filipino restaurant. Are there any? Um, yes, I think so. Um, there are a few. One in Kensington called Rombolos. Now I'm doing a free um, PR for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a self-conventional. Uh, there is one that's called Sarap, which is more of a bistro, a French, but Filipino flavor. And then there's one that's called Turo Turo, uh, Chef Rex, actually won in one of the TV show, or appeared in one of the TV show this year. Um, that competition with Jamie Oliver, I think, to create a cookbook. So he's got two pop-ups in, in London. And there's plenty of pop-ups, Rapsa in Archway in uh, Hoxton. Um, yeah, there's there, there's a few. There's there's a few, but that's why I said you know it needs a bit more out there, and um, mm. it's getting it's getting there. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna try one next year. That's gonna be one of my um one of my things to do in 2023. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try one out. Maybe the hot one. For you, Jules. <laughs> do you know what? Is that a day? There you go. It's a day. I'm coming over and you're gonna cook. <laughs> I'm my diary. Here we go. Yeah. Well, Mark, I talk to you all day. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on here. I am so, so hungry. So yeah. on that note, <laughs> we will thank all our listeners. Thank you so much for coming on here and take out your busy diary with everything you do. Thank you so much for coming on here. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Right, Thanks bye, for having guys. me. Great fun. Thanks. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Two Who Recruit. See you next time.